Before we start, a quick warning. This episode contains some swearing. I remember thinking two things when he punched me, one of which was, oh man, I'm going to be really late for work. But the other thing was, what did he mean about the United Nations? For most New Zealanders, political violence has always been something that happens in another country. They want normal screams then. They were right panicking. And then like when we looked down the road, there was a woman laid on the floor. Now, as we embark upon an election campaign, it's a clear and present danger in Aotearoa. I don't think I have a day here where I don't have threats and attacks. You give up reporting them. I, I, I live with security cameras on my house, nearly every angle you can come in. I think it is a very real threat. Miss and disinformation is rampant across online spaces, with the 2023 election campaign coming into view. It's even seeped into mainstream media like RNZ. It frequently fans racism, sexism, anti-Semitism. The list goes on. It ferments hatred and division. Experts, community leaders, and even people who've been active players in conspiracy theory networks are really worried about where it's taking us. There are the physical threats and violent acts, and then there is the corrosive impact on our democracy. Does anyone know what they're voting for anymore? If I had continued to believe what I was invited to believe, it was going to become a whole way of life of protests, of fear, of spreading misinformation. Who can you even trust if you can't rely on your own close family members? Whether it be in a family event or or elsewhere, he's saying horrible things. It's uncomfortable. We want no part of that. We don't want any part of that at all, but you're father to these kids, right? So you're inevitably tied to us as a family. I'm Susie Ferguson, and this is Undercurrent, an RNZ documentary series on disinformation. This is episode five, Muddying the Water. After Donald Trump stunned the world by winning the presidency of the United States, he helped popularise the term fake news. I'd like to welcome the fake news media, which is back there. The problem is you don't write the truth, so... Fake news. Go ahead. Sir, can you state... Quiet. Fake news. We are fighting the fake news. It's become so widely used that it's just about lost whatever meaning it ever really had. New Zealand politicians and pundits have been enthusiastic users of the term. They sometimes deploy it when they just didn't like whatever charge was being levelled at them. Don't be rude. Phony. Fake. Fake news. They have no sources. They just make them up when there are none. Fake news. Fake news. Fake news. But when you think about it, politics has always been full of stuff that could plausibly be described as fake news or misinformation. And that's without considering the implications of the first foray of AI into New Zealand politics in National Party campaigns. The political advertising you see online only ever offers a fraction of whatever story you're being asked to believe. We all know that political parties and lobby groups big up whatever morsel of truth they can find to support their argument and omit whatever detail doesn't fit. We rely on institutions like academia, the media, and a few universally agreed moral, constitutional and scientific norms to keep the political sleight of hand in check. 
They keep our democracy from tumbling over the edge of a precipice and into chaos. But what if the forces of mis- and disinformation are strong enough to overwhelm those checks? I mean, the thing is, the day after I was assaulted, the Christchurch terrorist attack occurred. And then, in some ways, that time has just kind of rolled through into the kind of COVID conspiracies. And I have been increasingly worried about the kind of fragility of our democracy, especially when you look at what's gone on in the United Kingdom, the United States and other countries uh, where um, this kind of social media fueled frenzy um, has actually had a destabilising effect on democracy. And I don't think that we're immune to that at all. And there's clearly some common links and, and trends here. And these things often show up in New Zealand maybe a couple of years behind other parts of the world, and we would be about right on time for that. That's James Shaw, co-leader of the Green Party. The assault he's talking about took place in 2019, when he was repeatedly punched by a conspiracy theorist in broad daylight while walking to work. It got a little bit lost with the Christchurch mosque atrocities coming a matter of hours later. But if you take a look at pictures of him in the days after the shootings, you can see he has a black eye. You might remember him telling his story on earlier episodes of Undercurrent. If not, go back and take a listen. You can see those pictures and listen to every episode of this series at rnz.co.nz slash undercurrent. I met Lara Greaves, Associate Professor of Politics at Wellington's Victoria University, in Tamaki Makaurau's Albert Park. I think it sucks that we have to consider this because New Zealand's always been kind of cute and quaint and our politics has been small town vibes, but we're now having to consider the issue of actually there being security threats and, you know, it's that classic thing of everyone kind of knows where various politicians live or you can text a friend of a friend and get in touch with them, but it's sad to think that we might lose some of that culture. Some MPs, and in some cases their staff, have faced a steep uptick in the intensity of harmful threats as well as attacks on offices over the last few years. The research shows that women experience much more abuse than men. Uh, People from ethnic minority backgrounds experience more abuse again. And not just in Aotearoa. This is Kim Leadbeater, who you may remember from earlier episodes of Undercurrent. Her sister, British MP Joe Cox, was murdered by a white supremacist in 2016 as she was about to hold a surgery in her constituency. They want normal screams then. They were like panicking. I mean, I have spoken to male colleagues who've also had some horrible death threats and and abuse. Uh, But yeah, all the research shows that you are more of a target if you're female or you are from uh, a minority background. Kim's now an MP herself, representing the same seat her sister held in Northern England. And since the killing of Joe Cox, another British Member of Parliament, Sir David Amos, was murdered in 2021 in the course of his work stabbed several times while holding meetings in public with his constituents. We've got, you know, ex-members of parliament who have quite openly said one of the reasons I'm stepping down is because I can't take the abuse anymore and I don't want my family to have to deal with this and live with this. And equally, young female um, 
potential candidates, you know, this is at the forefront of their mind. They might want to stand up and we need good people to stand up. And Lara Greaves says we need New Zealand solutions to the problem. How we are all two degrees of separation away from one another, you can't necessarily go, oh, that works in the UK and import it here. And that's going to be, I think, hard for trying to figure out the solutions um, for candidates and politicians and their security, because I think it would be quite easy to figure out where a politician was going to be. We don't want to have a situation where, like, ethnic minority women have to think about their security and their communications in a different way to sort of park our men. I don't think anyone would want that to play out. It just doesn't seem particularly fair. Nonetheless, Kim Leadbeater says a chilling effect is seen, especially on women and minority candidates. They know that they're entering a world where they're automatically opening themselves up to abuse and hostility. And you could argue, why would you want to do that? Why indeed? I went to Parliament to hear from all the parties currently represented there about the threats MPs are facing and the disinformation they're swimming in. Pretty much from day one of announcing that I was running, but the volume that came at me um, was really surprising. And I think from day one, those attacks did involve disinformation. This is Green Party MP... Golrees Garaman. She was born in Iran and in 2017 became the first refugee elected to New Zealand's parliament. That made her a target. You know, why do we let, why do we let refugees run for parliament? Why do we... And, and it very quickly turned to, um, it just it's actually really funny, I can, I can barely <laughs> say it out loud, but this thing of um, we're being infiltrated um, by the Islamic world and, you know, like I'm not Muslim, so then it very quickly moved to this is a terrorist, here's why, and just bizarre things would come out. And then also within a month or so, it turned to, She's not even a refugee. And this kind of weird truther stuff started to come out. So people writing really lengthy pages and pages of trying to prove that I wasn't even from where I was from. Which was really funny because the attack was, she's a refugee, that's why she shouldn't be in parliament, but also she's not even a refugee. (laughs) And so it's like, what is happening? Um, And the fact that I was trying to infiltrate you know, Western democracy and bring down Western civilization. But of course, since then, you know, there's been a million other things. But that was my initial... In late March, her colleague, Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson, was the target of intense online attacks. The disinformation project found that Telegram-based targeting of her spiked around the time of the visit by anti-trans activist Posey Parker. A report prepared by the group said no one else in New Zealand has been the focus of so much abusive content, apart from former Prime Minister Dame Jacinda Ardern. A lot appeared to come from neo-Nazis and the far right at a rate the researchers said they hadn't seen before. But other MPs have a different perspective. Uh, The facts of any situation are. Um, Also what the... Oh, sorry, that's a... um, I can hear a... It's the hot water pipe. Every so often it bubbles. I don't know why. Some of the offices in this building are pretty noisy. You notice this stuff when you're recording for a series like this. Um, (laughs) Is there somewhere we can go where you don't have a hot water pipe? 
Brooke van Velden is deputy leader of the Axe Party. I don't feel like I'm under threat. I don't feel like I'm being attacked in any way. Um, I think there are some people who do get um, forms of abuse, whether that's online or people, um, you know, being threatening in a public situation. But I, on the whole, I don't believe it's actually that large. She says she's only very rarely threatened. I just keep my head down um, and I also don't engage a lot on Twitter. You know, I, I don't go on that platform, but I'd be genuinely interested in knowing why other people uh, may receive um, greater threats than I do. Nicola Willis, deputy leader of the National Party, walks a line on whether she's seeing rising risk. Well, it doesn't feel like that for me, but I'm just really conscious in these conversations that there are people across Parliament who are having much different experiences from me. And I just accept the testimony of some of my female colleagues across the Parliament, particularly women of colour, that they have been feeling very threatened. So um, it's my hope that they are getting the support they need, that they are getting um, the the access to the security that they need. Um, But for me, no. I still feel like I can wander along Lambton Quay, I can turn up at the shopping mall, I can be in Gore or Palmerston North or Auckland Central and a few people will recognise me and smile and a few people will recognise me and frown but no one's going to put a fist out. The Disinformation Project director, Kate Hanna, says the attacks do come from all sides. We are in an election year, it's about the politics, not the person and I really emphasise that across the board. I've seen some... um, horrendous language describing um, some right-wing women recently and, and, you know, like, okay, don't do it. We talk about what they think and how they act, not what they look like and what they wear. Tell me about your tiki. Oh, moringa, moringa. So, yeah, it was, I guess, part of, um, reinvigorating our cultures, reinvigorating skills and tools that help to protect, keep us safe, that you can hang on to when your nerves are shooting through your head and you're in um, perhaps spaces that aren't necessarily respectful. This is Debbie Ngarewa Packer. I'm a um, outspoken, very um, pro wahine, uh, Maori, fair skin with a mukakawai proudly on her face. Co leader of Tipati Maori. What was happening was a demonising of my looks. So you'd have um, the mokokawai, um depicted in some really revolting ways. Um, the um, misogyny just, you know, grew out of out, off this planet. I've seen stacks of this type of abuse on Telegram, targeting her and other Wahine Māori MPs. And some of that, you know, revolting behaviour and that revolting sentiments would come out. Um, the language was vile. Uh, the um, consistent. It wasn't just on. Um, social media, across um, every way that you could contact. And I remember at one stage um, being absolutely paralysed with anxiety about, you know, should I quieten down? Should I dress less my my style? I had a little moment, and I'll never do that again. Um, And I actually doubled down and then started to use the material that was being thrown at me and actually decided that, no, I'm, I'm fighting back, I'm pushing back. You might be thinking... Where's the Labour government on all of this? A fair question. We wanted to put questions to all the parliamentary parties for undercurrent, 
I spoke with various MPs and staffers within Labour in the run-up to making the series. One of the main targets of extensive hatred and disinformation that I've seen is Cabinet Minister Nanaya Mahuta. She refused to be interviewed for undercurrents. At the time, fellow Cabinet Minister Kerry Allen then agreed only to pull out. From Tapati Mari's perspective, it's crystal clear that disinformation is radicalising people. Uh, my answer is yes, I, I do think um, there are those types of threats around every day. And I think it's really um, important not to um, play it down or get so used to fighting it that we miss something. And I think that was the reminder because you do... That being the murder of Joe Cox. And I think that was the reminder because you do become desensitised and you're pushing back um, constantly. I don't think I have a day here, maybe Christmas Day, I have to think about this, where I don't have threats and attacks. And um, you give up reporting them. I, I, I live with security cameras on my house, nearly every angle you can come in, down my driveway. Um, I have a team who will plan and figure out how I get in and how I get out. And and I, I, I guess I've just become used to it. And the only time I haven't felt threatened in a big crowd is at Matatini. But yeah, I, I think it is a very real threat. And I, I do think that we need to put real pressure on every um, government and entity to um, affect change. And that inc- includes um, the legislation that's been put on the back burner. Debbie Ngarewa Packers talking about the proposed hate speech legislation introduced after the mosque shootings, which was shelved when Chris Hipkins became Prime Minister. And at the other end of the political spectrum, Acts' Brooke van Velden says fake news and beliefs should be discussed. Especially during um, the COVID um, political situation, a lot of people genuinely didn't feel like they were being listened to. You know, we did have um, limitations on rights and freedoms, uh, and some people felt like their, their, their freedom of choice over their own lives was actually taken away from them. And so there are some genuine grievances. Um, but I don't believe that that will turn into actual threats of violence. Um, I think when we've got people who are coming to public meetings um, and still wanting to talk about COVID, even though on the, on the most part we have moved on, um, it is to genuinely be listened to and to be heard. Uh, and those people did not feel like their voices were heard uh, for over two years. But what we don't want to see is um, disinformation uh, underground, but actually bringing it into the open and being able to debate it in a public forum is actually a good thing. So you would like to have more debates about disinformation? Uh, what I'm saying is I- I'm open to people turning up in person rather than online to actually debate what they think uh, are the facts of a situation and what they think the solutions to a problem are. Um, Because what happens a lot online is there are a lot of one-sided conversations, you know, people putting out uh, what they believe to be true, uh, but not necessarily getting uh, feedback um, outside of a small bubble. Um, But being able to openly debate ideas and not feel bad for having those ideas, but to be able to have the opportunity to hear other forms of feedback is quite good. Public open debate is only good for democracy. I've spoken with lots of experts about this. 
not one has agreed that airing and debating disinformation would be a good idea. Before the campaign even started, the National Party's Nicola Willis had already experienced public meetings being hijacked by conspiracy theorists. Is this part of the chilling effect that that, that disruption to democratic debate is something that becomes more common? Only if we let it be. And this is something that's really important to me. If the response to having a public meeting where a group of people who are very anti-vaccine and wish that to dominate the public discourse gets dominated by that and then we say, well, no more public meetings, then we're letting the bad guys win. And so my view is that we need to adapt to that. And actually, for for generations in politics, we've had to have techniques in public meetings where we stop one voice dominating or one group of people dominating. And it's part of our toolkit. Uh, And I just think we need to really hone up that toolkit and get smarter about it. You know, I say all of this full of hope. Um, Is there a possibility that things will get shut down or there will be problems? I I wouldn't completely preclude that possibility, but I think we have to forge on and adapt. I'm interested in the kind of the feedback loop because inevitably um, it's important that politicians talk to people out there in Mm. the world all around the country Mm. Um, and people inevitably will will tell you things that help to shape your ideas or your policies, right? Mm. Are we in danger of there being a feedback loop at the moment that the people who are perhaps particularly motivated in seeking you out to talk to you about certain Mm. subjects are from potentially quite a small group of people, Mm. but they are getting a disproportionate influence? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because on the one hand, yes, note that there's an issue that's got people activated, that they're writing you lots of emails about it. But don't also think that because you've received 200 emails about an issue that that view that's being shared is representative of the broader community. Because even though it's only three years since the last general election, disinformation has been supercharged by... Social media. This is David Cormack, co-founder of PR firm Draper Cormack Group. He's previously worked as the head of communications for the Green Party and organised PR for big public and private organisations. He says political parties used to rely on the mainstream media to get their messages out. But now they can go out directly on Facebook, Instagram. They can do Facebook Lives. They can do shit posts on Twitter and get direct to the audience without it being filtered or fact-checked by the media. Uh, And this has caused, I think, a real breakdown in accuracy. Not to say that that mainstream media always got it 100% correct, but at least there's kind of a fact-checking process that happens that just does not exist in the social media world. And because there are so many, you know... Boomers in particular, I'm having to forever explain to my boomer parents that no, the latest theory that they've just read is not accurate. Because these are people that have grown up with a mainstream media that they can largely trust, and so they do just blindly trust these social media posts, and so they buy into them. And I don't blame them for that, Uh, it's just a virtue of when they grew up. People on all sides of politics recognise how close mainstream campaigns fly to the winds of misinformation on social media. My name is Janet Wilson. I I have been a journalist since 1976. I have been a journalist off and on. And you may also remember. National will re-emerge from this loss a stronger, disciplined and more connected party. Yeah. Yeah. 
It was the suicide mission. It was the poison option. So, yeah, I was National Party Chief Press Secretary from June 2020 to October the 19th, 2020, because it was the day after the election. That's the one National lost when Judith Collins was leader. Janet Wilson wasn't responsible for the party's social media outputs in the last campaign, but she says it's more important than ever that accuracy prevails. It's actually more vital because the level of distrust, and there has been, um, AUT has brought out their their recent levels of trust, which have fallen yet again. Um, And that's, that's the challenge for journalism, but that's the challenge for politics as well. Here's the rub. There are several truths in, in one way or another. And, and each party will always want to highlight their strongest points. So the most successful party will be the party that will be able to travel as close to the truth as they possibly can. I guess that's the question, though, isn't it? One is the social media factor. Um, getting it right, and I guess the perils of getting it wrong, because it happens, yes. it travels so far and so fast, Um, it's out the door and, I mean, it's always good to put corrections out, but to some extent there's no point in putting a correction out after something's been out on social media because you're never going to reach the audience that it did in the first place. Horse has bolted, right? Horse has bolted. So it's, and it's the very dynamism of, of the medium, much, even more so than journalism, right? I mean, we have, we have filters, we have other people looking over our stuff and questioning us about the job we do. Whereas in social media, once it goes, it goes and yeah. it's out. And it's, there's very little you can do um, to bring it back again. At the last election in 2020, there were some half-truths or fake news circulating. Well, thank you very much for making the time uh, in the midst of all of these things that you're doing. Um, to talk. Sorry, that's my dog. Of course she wants to bark at me now. Hang on a second. Where are you? Do you want to come in? You can come in, but you're not allowed to bark. Oh, my goodness. So, I think she wants to be like that now. She just wanted to know where I was. That's a typical cat-like behaviour. I want in, I want out. She has big cat energy when it comes to doors. Yeah, always on the wrong side. According to Dr Mona Krull, director of the Internet, Social Media and Politics Research Lab at Victoria University, some of it came from parties in Parliament – For example, 9% of Facebook posts from ACT contained half-truths, 4% of New Zealand Firsts and 3% of Nationals. But the overwhelming amount of disinformation in 2020 came from Billy Takahika's Advance New Zealand. Almost a third of their Facebook posts were inaccurate and 6% totally fake. And Dr Kroll says she took a conservative approach which probably underestimated the amount of mis- and disinformation circulating then. But now, she sees it increasing in volume and aggression. It was very much still about COVID and the vaccines, but this topic is fading out now, as we see in the data, and they jump on new stuff. Um, They jump on the Ukraine, the war in the Ukraine and Putin, and justify Russia's um, uh, invention um, uh, in the Ukraine, stuff like that come up with other conspiracy theories uh, to blame blame the government just to have their topic not fade away, which was COVID for a long time. So first of all, it has increased. Uh, and the second thing is like the topics change. Um, 
So yeah, we definitely saw a change since 2020. Also for me as a researcher, I would say there was a change and they didn't care much about me calling them out publicly for that with the New Zealand social media study. Now in 10 minutes after something is kind of online, I've been on TV and talked about that topic. Um, usually my, my inbox fills up and my voicemail with some kind of hate messages uh, around that from people for saying that this was fake news. This time round... Where's it coming from? So it clearly comes from uh, people like Chantal Baker, Operation People. That's Chantal Baker's setup, streaming videos and podcasts. Um, Susan Gray, Freedom and Outdoors Party, um, the New Conservative, those kind of groups are doing it. I spoke to Mona Kroll on Zoom before Brian Tamaki of Destiny Church announced that he was running for Parliament this year as the leader of an umbrella party, which includes the Outdoors and Freedoms Party, and its leader, Sue Gray, is number two on the list. But politicians can have a tendency to bark at every passing car. And one well-known party is beginning to ping on her radar. We have seen in particular conspiracy theories um, from Winston Peters' side increasing in our data. Um, and I think this is a sign of being desperate. So he has seen that some of the other French parties, he didn't have competitors, um, uh, that many competitors in 2020. Now he has competitors who have picked some of the, the voting clientele that he seeks vote, votes from that are his possible target group. And if you are desperate and want to return into parliament, you might pick up some of those methods and learn from what they are doing. Um, and that, I think, is currently what we are seeing with New Zealand First. Um, and they will probably be, I suspect them uh, to be among those uh, that we will call out for, for disinformation in the 2023 election. And probably the only one who could have a win from that. The other parties might not be strong enough, uh, even if they run under an umbrella. Um, but for him, it could make the difference between the return into parliament uh, and not. And a return into parliament might be a return into government. But, um, you know, if New Zealand first was to get back in in part because of a lift from the vote from that, that area of the political spectrum. What does that mean? Destabilisation of the country? Or would it be simply a means to an end, do you think? So there's a difference between Winston Peters and government and Winston Peters running for elections. So he might borrow some of the strategies of the extremists, but he won't make New Zealand ungovernable once he is in government, um, if he makes it into government, probably just into parliament. She's not the only one concerned at what may be in store. Two thirds of the 2000 people surveyed by NetSafe earlier this year agreed that misinformation will have a significant impact on the coming election. That level of concern is understandable, according to Sanjana Hatotua of the Disinformation Project. I am very worried about the general election. Disinformation's designs are aimed at the heart of democracy. They eviscerate it. That is the sole purpose of disinformation. This is not a joke. This is not going to go away. There's another term that surged into the political lexicon since Donald Trump took the White House. Ungovernable. It's often chosen by people worried about where Trumpian tactics lead us. What do you think could happen, might happen? Well, I think there is a point at which the country becomes sort of largely ungovernable uh, because 
any time a government of any persuasion tries to do something, then a mob can be geared up to create such a opposition to it that that thing doesn't go ahead. And and that kind of split reality that appears to be occurring right now where people just don't even live in the same world and don't interpret things according to any common basis. I don't know how you can maintain any kind of social cohesion or normal system of government under those circumstances. Next time on Undercurrent. What's behind the torrent of disinformation? It doesn't have to be someone in the Kremlin pushing a button and sending stuff to New Zealand because even if you're a creator or narrator based in New Zealand, you can see that that kind of disinformation is the most popular and therefore the most successful, is likely to get you the most followers and is likely to bring you fame and fortune. Where it's from. Fear is a very potent way to get people to believe very oversimplified information and act in particularly simplified ways. And how to weed it out. Find someone that you trust and say, I've just read this thing. What do you think about that? Undercurrent is an RNZ series created, produced and presented by me, Susie Ferguson. It was written by Susie Ferguson and John Hartfelt. It features the voices of Vivian Bell, Richard Chapman, Francesca Ems and Carmel McGlone, produced with Duncan Smith. The studio engineer is William Saunders. The executive editor is John Hartfelt. For more information and resources, visit our website, rnz.co.nz slash undercurrent. Undercurrent.